There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Australia is back on track. I actually find it gobsmacking. Just dumbstruck. I'm going to shirt front, Mr Putin. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. I don't think I know. I have no hesitation. That should cause great concern. Just sit down. sick of your eyes. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. He needs a mirror. I mean... (laughs) Fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. (laughs) G'day and welcome to this episode of Democracy Sausage. I'm Mark Kenny from the ANU's Australian Studies Institute and the School of Politics and International Relations. And this podcast is brought to you each and every week with the fabulous support of the Crawford School of Public Policy's Policy Forum. With me in Canberra is Dr. Maria Teflaga. She's a Spear social scientist at his School of Politics and International Relations, as mentioned. Um, and she's also the director of the Centre for the Study of Australian Politics. And Maria, it's really terrific to, uh, to be talking to you as always, but uh, we had a great time last week, did we not, uh, doing the first ever live Democracy Sausage in front of an audience, the 200th episode. That was a lot of fun. That was great. Yes. I, I, I sincerely hope we do that again. Yeah, well, I think we do have some plans to do that again and to do some other uh, ways of of interacting with our audience and uh, we'll be doing that in this election campaign. So details of that we'll we'll put out as soon as we finalise them. It's a bit like everything else in an election campaign. uh, We have to keep everyone guessing right until the last minute, much like people on the campaign buses. They never know which city they're going to be in. We're going to do the same thing, although our excuse is that we we need to make a number of arrangements to do it, and we're working also with Policy Forum Pod, our sister pod, and we'll be uh, um, perhaps doing some things with them as well as uh, as as well as our own thing. So that's something for people to look uh, look out for, and we'll as I say get the details out now. Joining us all the way from Boston, Massachusetts today is Professor Richard Holden. He's Professor of Economics at the University of New South Wales Business School. He's Director of the Economics of Education Knowledge Hub at UNSW Business, and he's Co-Director of the New Economic Policy Initiative. He's also currently the President of the Academy of Social Sciences in Australia. Richard, um, you're a former faculty member too of the University of Chicago and of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. So I guess what you're just um, visiting some old friends and uh, and 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 touching base back in the US. Yeah, Mark, great to be with you. I'm just uh, kind of catching up and reacquainting myself with uh, 
the center of the economic universe as it was in in the US. So uh, it's it's great to still have a foot in both camps. Is it? Uh, I'm really interested to to hear you just your first impression of talking with uh, with both, I guess, professional colleagues, but just other people you know there as well. Um, whether you get a sort of a different sense of of the world from where you are, there's a lot going on, of course, at the moment. We we've got the Ukraine Russia crisis, the invasion of Ukraine. I'm not trying to mince my words there. Uh, we've, we've got a lot of talk about China here in Australia, and it's very much part of the election campaign. Of course, the pandemic continues on. Is, do you get a different sense of um, of the perilous state of the world from the US, or is it much the same? I, I no, I don't think it's the same. Actually, uh, I get the the real sense of the uh, you know incredible polarization of U.S. politics being here, um, and you know I get that when I talk to friends on the phone and uh, you know on, on Zoom and all that kind of stuff, uh, which which hasn't changed in the last couple of years. But being here in person, there's this real sense that there's um, enormous polarization in U.S. politics, and as People who are pretty close to, you know, the election in uh, the election in France and things like that makes really salient how divided uh, our politics is. And most of what people say to me is, you know, isn't it great to be in Australia where things are a little bit more, a, li- a little bit more sane? And and uh, they really, that they really comes home to me. Yeah, well, they are a little bit more sane, and and as you say, we saw France uh, re-elect uh, Emmanuel Macron, the uh, the president of France, over the weekend. But there was uh, north of forty percent of uh, French voters went with the far right uh, of Marine Le Pen. Um, is, was there was there any interest in that uh, election in the US? Uh, I know it, I know the US is not particularly Europe focused, generally speaking. No, I think there is, and I think the da- the damage was the difference between thirty ish percent and forty ish percent um, that you saw in that electoral outcome. So, you know, Macron was re-elected uh, in one sense. There's nothing to see there. Mm. You know, the outcome didn't change, but in another sense, a message was sent, and and I think that's that's really worrying. And there's there's sort of more of a connection than one might imagine. Um, between, you know, the European cognoscenti and and the US, um, which is there's always been a really strong connection between, you know, US academia and 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 France, and that there are a lot of people who who have these sort of strong connections, and so I, I think there's there's real concern about that, which is a message was sent, and there's a big difference between a third and closer to a half of the electorate um, speaking out and, um, you know, we'll have to wait and see how that, that plays out. And Macron so far has sort of stood firm in terms of the way he's going to react to that message, but it's, it's concerning and people are worried. Maria, that uh, that is a concern, isn't it? That uh, the the French electorate is so divided. And, and I guess um, we'll come back to you on this question as well, Richard, but um it, it poses a, a challenge. I mean, at one level, Macron could just simply say, "Well, you know, I've I've seen off a you know a far right challenge, and I continue on as I was. Uh, perhaps even try and be more inclusive, more progressive." On the other hand, he might decide that 
you know, there's a strong center, strong nationalist uh, and populist sort of tendency in the electorate now, and he needs to find a way of reaching out to those voters in order to keep the whole um, the, the republic together, really. Uh, the, the, so he could go two ways here, and uh, one of them, uh, well, I guess both of them have some risks. Yeah, I, I don't think um, 40% of the vote going to Marie Le Pen is um, – uh, like it's that's something to be really quite concerned about, you know. Like she, you know, she she is a a candidate um, uh, from the far right, and it, it really does sort of speak to um, some of the divisions in French society around both uh, economic dimensions around labour market reform, which is something that Macron has tried to pursue um, and which is a long-running, I guess, discussion in, in France that is quite different from our politics here and that was the subject of um, the the sort of yellow jacket protests that went on for weeks and weeks and weeks. Uh, but also, you know, some significant uh, sort of um, cultural threat sort of cultural threat perception um, dimensions around, uh, you know, the role of Islam in a secular republic, but uh, one that is ultimately sort of heavily has like a strong Christian identity, and and that's kind of where some of this politics in Europe, you know, it's not just France. It's just that in some ways France is at the vanguard of these debates. We see this all over Europe where European values are increasingly being defined by far-right parties and even even just mainstream uh, right parties increasingly um, as as Christian, um, you know, you know or, or, or European um, is sort of, you know, broadly kind of equated with a Christian kind of heritage in, in a way that right-wing politicians here used to really kind of flex into British traditions and, and which is sort of now kind of more broadly becoming more kind of Western values or, or Christian um, values. and uh, With often an American inflection to them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, um, I think you know, the, the departure of, of Tony Abbott yeah, is probably the perhaps the last sort of great – advocate of British, specifically British, yes. um, like history and legacy. And this is now a slightly more kind of generalized into a, a kind of Christian identity. And we, we see this actually play out with discussions around which refugees will accept, right? Um, so, for example, during the rise of Daesh or ISIS, you had a lot of right-wing politicians in this country happy to accept Christian communities um, from that part of the world. And, you know, we can kind of see it um, around the discussion of putting um, Ukrainians uh, who are Christians at the front of the queue, uh, so to speak, which is the language that the the Prime Minister used. And, and we, 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 we are seeing populism across across the democratic world and something that political scientists in some ways were kind of blindsided by, um, which is partially to do with the way um, our data sets are structured and the fact that, you know, if you've got a time series data set, you often want to preserve the value of that time series so it's harder to add new questions and and. So you are in effect trying to measure things like populism, which are quite complicated, using like proxies, which are not always very precise. So, you know, like how you feel about immigration, does that correlate with being with being a populist? But um, it is something we're starting to understand a lot more. This is a very long-winded answer to your question. Sorry, Mark. No, no, but it's a, it raises some very good points. And it had me thinking uh, about 
um, and I'll come to you on this, Richard, uh, about Macron and similarities between Macron and and Obama in the sense of being these kind of new generation leaders that really are the, almost like the apotheosis of of liberal thought um, and 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 these ideas around multiculturalism and modernization and different conceptions of identity and and the like, and then the backlash that we see that comes against that from. From people, and we've seen this in the uh, in the UK, you know, welling up in the in the form of Brexit and the fall of all of those red wall uh, uh, Labor seats to the Tories. Um, we've seen it, uh, as as Maria said, in a number of European countries. We're seeing it in France now, and we see it in the backlash uh, after Obama with the election of Donald Trump. I wonder if if you, you you're seeing those sorts of tendencies as well uh, uh, in the US, uh, Richard. Well, I, th- I think I think places like Europe are a lot closer to these, you know, issues than than we are in Australia in a certain way, right? So, um, when you when you see kind of refugee crises play out as they did in Germany, where you literally have a million people welling up on your border after what happened in Syria and so on, you know, it's a it's a different scenario than what we've seen in Australia. So I think we're less attuned to it in Australia and we're a little more immune from it, but there, mm. there are sort of immutable forces that that don't go away, um, you know, when we, when, we, when we see that kind of stuff. So I, I think we're a little more shielded from it in Australia, but those, those issues are still – those issues are still definitely uh, de- definitely there, and I think our politics reflects that, which is we don't have the same kind of, you know, as Marie was saying, Christian conservatism as a as sort of a, a as a force as a backlash to that. We're not we're not seeing that in quite the same way. That doesn't mean we're not going to see it in the future. It's a it's really a question of how it, you know, how it plays out over time. Yeah, and I guess that depends to some extent. I mean, all of those situational factors uh, are important, probably fundamental. Um, but one wonders what would happen in Australia in the face or in response to a genuinely charismatic figure arising on the populist right. And that sort of person is not obviously the, you know, distinctly awkward uh, and limited Pauline Hanson or the clearly self interested. And mercurial and just sort of bizarre, Clive Palmer. But down the track, uh, I guess we can't just assume that we are, uh, as an electorate, immune to um, to to a sort of a charismatic populist movement that uh, could come along. Particularly as we experience difficulties, and a lot of those difficulties, I, I guess, we should be talking to you about now, Richard, because you are an economist after all, and thinking about uh, the, the the forces that are at play underneath all of these populist movements often it's uh, economic concerns feelings of um, of disadvantage and disenfranchisement and of being left behind as was very much the case with uh, labor voters in the UK and and probably uh, uh, traditional labor type voters in some of these other polities as well so I wonder if we might start on that economic uh, sort of dimension by just asking you a general question. You know how perilous is the is the world now in term is the global economy? I mean, you know, is it as is it as dangerous as it feels? Uh, are we are we facing a situation where inflation could genuinely be out of control and where we could see a, a range of other sequelae from that? 
I think it's a it's a really sort of concerning time. So, um, you know, in one sense, there's good and bad, which is we're seeing, you know, whether it's in Australia or whether it's in the US or whether it's in the UK, this is true of much of the kind of advanced economies in the world. We're seeing really low uh, unemployment. That's great news. That's really, really good news. But we're seeing for the first time in decades, um, the threat of inflation. And, and we're seeing people think about that and what it means for their living standards for the first time in a really long time. And people are right, rightly concerned about that. And, and so all of these kind of questions about well, what's happening to our standard of living are really front of mind. Um, and there'll be continued questions about, you know, what's the right sort of system what's the right economic and democratic system to address those concerns? And that's been an uncontested question for a really long time. You know, for a really long time, the answer has been, well, you know, it's some version of liberalism and that's sort of what we've got and, um, you know, that's that's the way it's going to go. And people are starting to you know, ask the question, well, is, is, you know, is that what it should be or should, should it be something else? And so I think that's the real, that, that's a real concern for the political system, which is are we well equipped to address those questions? And one of the things that you, you know, you touched on earlier and it goes to the Le Pen question is all of a sudden the far right have become a lot more professional. And I think one of the big lessons from, you know, this French election is Le Pen didn't just win another, you know, 5 or 10% of the vote. That's true. That's a fact. But Le Pen got a lot slicker and Le Pen got advised a lot better and and took it more seriously, basically. And and so we can we can sort of satisfy ourselves with the situation in Australia and say, well, that would never happen here. Um, but, you know, one of the questions is what what would happen if Clive Palmer or Pauline Hanson kind of got their, got their act together in, in another kind of way? What if they were advised better and what if they were slicker? And what if they could animate those legitimate concerns um, and can you know con- concerning concerns in many ways, but legitimate concerns on the right. And, and what if they could? What if they could vocalise those better? And that's what that's kind of what terrifies me in a certain kind of way. Well, I think it terrifies many people as a as a as a question. I think the only consoling thing there is that, as I, as I said before, I just can't see it happening with either of these two particularly flawed characters. Um, I just don't think the depth is there. Um, there's just not enough to work with. Um, but, uh, you know, I could we're be... We're also sort of insulated in a way from with, with compulsory voting, right? And that, that we can kind of see that cutting two, two ways right now. You know, there's a whole group of people who might have just refused to vote um, that are voting for Pauline Hanson or, or Clive Palmer because they're, they're looking for a, for a protest vote. And, you know, and Richard's kind of, um, he's right um, when we sort of talk about the political system in terms of its ability to kind of deliver um, 
problems and solutions uh, for the future. And that's actually a conversation we have been having for at least a decade. And the final thing I will sort of sort of make the point is, is that we actually kind of saw a similar pattern arise in the 1970s, um, which was, you know, sparked by an inflation crisis, uh, where, you know, we, we, we reached the end of a policy orthodoxy and it actually took political systems a good 10 years to kind of come up with the alternative, which was the neoliberal system that we all lived through. Um, and, and we're kind of at the crunch reckoning point now. You know, policy has been left to drift for an awful long time. The urgency and the need for change is becoming more and more apparent. People are aware of it. Um, so, you know, it, it, it doesn't mean that things will necessarily get better, but that, that opportunity space, that uh, punctuated in- equilibrium to use political science jargon is, is now arising. It is a chance to actually do something new. I think that comes from evolutionary biology, actually. But, uh, oh, yeah. we love to steal stuff from science, right? <laughs> Political science. Correct. So, yeah. Look, let's take a, a very quick break and continue this discussion in a moment. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part, for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. All right, welcome back. Well, just before the break, we were talking about punctuated equilibrium and various other things about whether we are at a a crunch point in terms of that or coming up against the limits of that uh, that the, the sort of neoliberal policy agenda. One sign of that, I suppose, Richard Holden, is uh, Clive Palmer's very populist appeal to a fixed maximum three percent interest rate. I wonder, as an economist, whether you could just uh, deconstruct that for us. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, that's a, uh, the top line is that's a bad idea. <laughs> um, <laughs> big um, surprise. You know, no, yeah, big surprise. No shocks there. Um, look, it's it, it's both populist and a bad idea, right? Which is it's responding to a legitimate concern, which is the most important thing in a lot of people's lives is you know what the interest rate they're going to pay on their their mortgage or how it affects their lives in various different ways. And so it's very understandable. Um, and as a populist appeal, it's a, you know, it's an understandable thing to grab onto. Um, you know, I can't believe we're going to have to go back into this kind of, you know, discussion, but the, these ideas of, you know, price fixing and command and control economies really go back to, you know, in the 1970s and the debates about, you know, whether we want to live in the Soviet Union or the United States or something like that. So it's it's almost comical mm. to go 
back there in a way. But, you know, we've lived for a very long time in most of the world in a situation where we understand that markets work pretty well. They need to be mediated um, as they have been for a really long time in Australia. You know, they need to be mediated by, um, you know, minimum wages and they need to be mediated by internalising externalities and dealing with, you know, the worst excesses of certain things. But the bottom line is, you know, you put the government in control of setting prices, that's a recipe for disaster. And so even though it's, you know, got certain populist appeal and that's what the Palmer policy is playing to in a very stark way, it's a bad idea and it would, you know, it, it, it would also never happen. Um, so it's kind of a cheap thing for him that's to the, say. Isn't that, that that's sort of, sorry to jump in there, but that's the kind of problem with it, isn't it, that I ask you why it's a bad idea and I'm getting, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not having any trouble understanding you, but, but it's nowhere near as simple as a response as the assertion to begin with, which is I'm going to set interest rates at a maximum of 3%. I mean, a lot of people who uh, haven't studied economics um, might just say, well, that sounds like a pretty good policy to me, um, and just go with it. Uh, the, the response needs to be, you know, the response in a sense is an argument about orthodoxy and the complexity of markets and not having governments directing prices and so forth, and all of those things are valid, but they're not they're not on a bumper sticker, if you know what I mean. No, that's exactly right, and I think one of the one of the things that's important in all of this is there have been ideas that have been uncontested for you know, more than a generation. And I'm, what am I? I'm 47 years old, right? So um, th- when, when I say a generation, uh, I kind of mean an earlier time that, you know, that was our, uh, pre-Berlin Wall falling and things like that. Right. Th- there are discussions that we haven't had about these like core philosophical ideas, that we really haven't had, and and it's more true in Australia than in places like the United States because in Australia, as has been discussed, we haven't had a real recession, you know, until the coronavirus crisis. We haven't had a real recession in over 30 years. There's a whole lot of people who just haven't seen kind of normal economic swings and roundabouts. Thanks in large measure to China. Yeah, that's been kind of helpful, right? Like that the, you know, an economy, it, it, it's important to remember that that um, I had to look this up uh, the other day when I was writing a column as to when Bill Clinton was president, what was the size of China's economy? And it was about the size of Maine, you know, like a, an inconsequential state of the United States. And I have a lot of friends from Maine, so I don't, you know, say that with any, you know, um, Malice. with any ill will, but it, it was tiny and it's now the same size as the United States. And that was 30 years ago. And that's an extra, that's an extraordinary thing. And Australia has benefited from that, you know, more than we can, more than we can calculate basically. And, uh, it's changed our economy extraordinarily and it's changed our politics a lot. And I think one of the things that's 
really important about this is that we've gone from being a place in Australia where we sort of think about our economy as being very diversified to one where our three biggest export industries, and again, the the coronavirus crisis has kind of changed this, but between iron ore and coal and education, they're essentially our three largest export industries, and they all go to China. And China's increasingly under the control of a person who can just turn that tap off if literally he wants to. And that just isn't the way we used to think about things in this country. And so, you know, if that happens and uh, our three largest export industries kind of disappear or come under enormous threat, that's something we're going to have to think about in a really big way and it's going to change our politics as well as our economics. Yeah, Marie, it always seems to me like sort of there's, there's, a, there's a sort of a hypocrisy in our political discourse in this country and there's, obviously there's a clear hypocrisy in, in the discourse in China as well, um, you know, with what it purports to be as an economy and uh, its um, its respect for its people and then the way, uh, you know, human rights are abused and, and people are controlled and, uh, you know, edicts are issued and, and, and people must obey them and so forth, you know, very much a, a, a powerful autocratic surveillance state. But we have our own hypocrisy in the sense that, you know, during that period that Richard's just described of this extraordinary growth of China and the hunger it has for our, our, uh, exports, that we've benefited enormously, enormously from this in an economic sense. But our political discourse has been traveling almost in the other direction, uh, and, and is, and is sort of, Operates like as if it's in an entirely different world, uh, where we talk about China in, in, in very negative terms, and increasingly that's the case. And on both sides of politics, you know, there's not a whole lot of difference. Uh, and yet here we are avoiding all of these economic shocks over time, uh, and, and our economy growing and growing when other economies aren't, uh, through those shocks because of our dependence and, and fantastic economic relationship with China, which is, you know, just, flooding our government with and our companies with uh, with income with revenue well i guess the the context for that was a china that i guess at the at the end of the, the cold war and the sort of liberalization and experiments particularly before tiananmen um um of the sort of deng deng regime that, that there was this sort of pretty breezy argument being made that economic growth would lead to a development of a middle class and a middle class would demand political rights. And we've sort of seen a very mixed pattern of uh, that relationship across, uh, well, across the world, really. And and it is actually a, a major debate of um, our discipline, which we don't really understand because, uh, you know, there's evidence pointing one way and evidence pointing the other. Uh, I think that the way we talk about i think australians do understand that we are financially dependent on china in a way that we used to be sort of dependent on our relationship with britain right and i i have a feeling this is what drives some of the 
disquiet or frustration, um, even in the general community, which is sort of showing up in polling data, but also in the sort of audible groan um, that happened during the debate last week um, when Scott Morrison sort of lent into or, or re-sort of excavated his Manchurian candidate kind of style attacks on Labor. And I think there is an understanding amongst enough of the population that this is a complex relationship that we have with China, that much of our wealth um, is and, and our prosperity and our ability to avoid uh, or the resilience of our economy um, is is there and that it's a relationship that actually really needs to be managed. And I, I do find it really interesting that the government is sort of doubling down on its aggressive language around China uh, and you do sort of see uh, different kinds of messaging coming out of different parts of the the government you know it's 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 a really sort of hard sort of security tack uh with peter dutton and morrison kind of like leans in and out of 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 this debate but that is um you know that is a a a reality of of how we make money in this country It, it also explains why we've made little progress on climate change um because of the perceptions of where our national uh wealth is and it is a conversation that we're going to actually have to have um, over the coming decade about whether or not this leaves us uh, vulnerable and um, and whether or not we want to do anything about it. And to be fair to the coalition, this is actually a huge part of the Turnbull agenda, you know. I mean, that was actually like most of his sort of shtick, which at the time people weren't terribly interested in, I have to confess. Yes, you say uh, complex relationship. I, I'd say yes, that's true. It's complex. Another word might be duplicitous in the sense that you know we, like I say, we just have this kind of um, we, we want to we want to keep doing business, but we just we also want to uh, talk about China as if it is this. Well, we're, we're now actually into talking about China as, as if it's an enemy. I mean, we had Peter Dutton in the last twenty four hours uh, on Anzac Day, no less, uh, saying that Australia must prepare for war. Yeah, this is needlessly inflammatory. I just, I just, I mean, you know, I just, I don't see the sort of logic in it. You know, um, the government doesn't really want to talk about human rights um, and China's human right rec- rights record for because of our own patchy record on that field in relation to uh, asylum seekers and, and refugees. Um, but to be to be fair, right? We we live in a dangerous world. We've always lived in a dangerous world. Yeah, yeah. And, but, but, is, but isn't this really just the government saying, "Look, you know, you keep standing too close to us on China. There's too much bipartisanship here," and so they're just sort of straying further and further toward the kind of slightly mad end of this debate, uh, uh, because at some point they they're hoping that Labor will break away. At which point? They can say, see, see, we told you they're not tough on China. We told you they don't have the sand to, to, to stand up to Beijing. We told you that they are uh, Manchurian candidates or whatever else. And, you know, presumably that's what's going on here. The coalition's frustrated at the oneness with, uh, with the op- from the opposition on this question. Yeah, and I, you know what? That's actually a really good uh, point. Uh, Mark, and I think the foreign policy establishment would broadly speaking agree with you. And I'll extend that point by saying 
The problem for the coalition with China, right, is that this debate used to happen, the security debate used to happen around the arc of the United States, right? Um, you know, our, our great powerful ally who was a, a global superpower and so like any great power often do things that are not exactly nice, right? Or, uh, or you know, they'll violate international agreements or um, act in, a, in, in unilateral ways um, and and that ne- isn't necessarily au fait with the rules-based order and there's a whole cohort of people on the left uh, whose entire bread and butter came out of uh, criticising the United States for that, you know, either because of the sort of Cold War context where you've got these rival sort of systems or simply that you've got this unipolar world. But the thing is, is that the United States was a democracy and so um, – and and people had lived through the Cold War where the where the the bad guys, so to speak, were the sort of Soviet Union. But now, you know, pitching this around China, right? Trying to get the coalition, sorry, trying to get Labor to break on China. I think this is a fool's errand. It's 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 not gonna happen. I mean, you know, like the the sort of underlying assumption here is is that, you know, Labor doesn't believe in Australia and doesn't believe in Australia's national interest, right? <laughs> but I just think this is kind of this is mad. Like this is not gonna it's not gonna work. It's not the same it's not the same frame. You know, and yeah. and the war in Ukraine, I think, really sort of shows this. You know, um, uh, the the coalition is probably was probably sort of expecting some level of criticism around this, but if anything, the left has kind of moved in and parked itself behind the the Ukrainian conflict and 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 you know have suddenly become warmongers in effect, right? Mm. Like uh, the whole the whole the whole tectonics of of politics like you know th- these these plates have unmoored at the GFC and they have slowly been moving and the coalition has um i is reality is starting to catch up with them and and that's because they 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 didn't do a lot of renewal work whilst they were in opposition and as a government because they have a, a new prime minister every 3 years they have effectively set the reset button each time and they haven't really been able to pivot. I think if Malcolm Turnbull had remained Prime Minister, this would be less of a problem for them, but he didn't. No, he didn't. Instead, they had a Prime Minister who didn't really promise to do much other than deliver some tax cuts uh, and not be Bill Shorten, and that turned out to be enough. But, That's right. Uh, and if it hadn't been for the pandemic, uh, uh, you know, th- there wouldn't have been all that much to do. The, I mean, Parliament hardly ever sit, sits anyway. Um, look, we've got this, uh, uh, you know, one of the world's great economists here, so I think we should at least um, come back to, to, the, to the economic question in the few minutes that we've got left. Richard, uh, I wonder, can I draw you to uh, interest rates again uh, and uh, uh, that general frame uh, and ask you about, uh, one, whether you think interest rates will go up here and is it possible that it will happen during the election campaign, as was the case in 2007, which was none too convenient for the uh, Howard government, outgoing as it became, not necessarily just as a result of that, but it certainly didn't help. Um, Is that a possibility or will there be a rate rise sort of fairly shortly after the election so that if there's a new government, it will be handling that. And and I think as an allied question, if I can double barrel this, um, are, are we just missing something here in the whole question about housing affordability and access to the housing market? You know, there were some policies in the last election that Labor took to the electorate but was defeated. Um, 
Labor's now walked away from that, you know, curbing capital gains tax concessions, uh, limiting negative gearing. These were things associated with trying to take some of the heat out of the housing market and make it more affordable. So those two questions about an interest rate rise and housing policy generally. Yeah, well, I think yes and yes is the short answer to your question. So let me unpack that a little <laughs> a bit. Short answer to my long um, question. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I think in terms of interest rates, there's this broad sort of tectonic view of things, which is there was a world where uh, there was a world of the 1980s and 1990s and the early 2000s where interest rates were broadly speaking reasonably high and there's a bunch of global forces, the balance between the supply and demand of money that have brought those interest rates down to some degree. And we've seen that play out in a fairly messy kind of way. But the bottom line is you should think of the RBA cash rate in Australia in normal times as being more like 3% than more like 6 or 7%. And so you shouldn't you should think of like you know those those kind of scary uh, mortgage interest rates of 17% as being anomalies of a different era and things like that. Um, and so where are we now relative to that? We're on the low side of that relative to that. So we're going to see interest rates go up from here, but we're not going to see them go up to those kind of scary levels. Now, going up three, four percentage points from where they are now, uh, for a lot of heavily indebted households is going to be a, a troubling and scary thing. And so that, that's not going to be easy for a whole lot of folks. But we, we shouldn't think about this as a return to the kind of late 1980s or something like that. Um, so, so I think that's the sort of general view of that's the sort of general view of interest rates. And that'll mean that there's, you know, this 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 shift in the in the relative merits of borrowing and investing. And that and and that's um, that's something that we've seen play out for a long period of time now. Um, when it comes to housing affordability, I think this is just a it's not a peculiarly Australian problem but it's an importantly Australian problem. And both sides of politics have done nothing about this. They've just done nothing about this. So, you know, I I had a policy about, um, you know, it's, I, I wrote a paper in, I don't know, 2015 for the McKell Institute that became Labor Party policy at two elections, um, both of which they lost. Uh, so they tried around, to do something about it. Yeah, they did, to their credit, mm. to their great credit, I must say, um, uh, and bravely so, uh, although at the last one they coupled it with some other ideas that, you know, I'm not a politician, so who am I to say? But Went know, from brave to crazy brave, worked, you say. May have worked well or may have worked poorly. I don't really know how to how, how to pass that. But, um, but the basic idea is that we – we provide massive incentives for people to buy investment properties in Australia in a way that I think creates a very unlevel playing field between people who want to own homes and want to invest in 
buying homes as investment properties. And I think that's a, you know, a bad idea. And it's an idea that creates uh, a very unlevel playing field and makes it very hard for young people. You know, there are a lot of other things going on in the Australian property market, which is, you know, you take a place like Sydney, it's supply constrained on a whole lot of different dimensions and you just look at the geography of it and it's it's complicated, right? So there are many, many other things going on. But it, we're not helping matters by turbocharging the ability for people to buy investment properties. And that's no news. Everyone's understood this for a really long time. And government after government, back in fact to the 1950s, actually, with the first, you know, first homeowner type incentives on both sides of politics have just thrown petrol on the fire when it's come to this stuff. And it's it's inherently tempting, which is people say, oh, we want young people to be able to get into the property market. Let's, let's give them something to do it. And when you give them something to do it, that gives everyone something to do it and that drives up prices. And it's just, it's it's sort of, you know, people can't help, politicians can't help themselves. And so they do it. And the logic is that that if they were to do anything about it, uh, that this would result in in the loss of some wealth for uh, a significant proportion of the electorate that owns their own home. That is that we could see prices come down. Uh, and that would the, the, the house price is a key asset of uh, many Australian households, of course, uh, and um, and for those with investment properties, it would be you know um, also devalue their property. So no political party seems to have the the will to actually confront the problem that to make houses more affordable means making them cheaper. This is exactly the problem you get yourself into, which is you create the problem and it's bad enough. And then you want to remedy it and people are going to lose. So, so you know, what is the answer if you actually do something about this, which is, as you exactly said, Mark, prices go down. And, you know, if you're an owner of property, that's a bad, that you know, that's a bad story, right? So, and, and now it's almost impossible to do something about it because it's going to lead to this, there, there was a time when it was we can make prices go up not as fast as they were going to go up by. We can kind of squeak our way out of it. And now it's almost like prices have to go down for us to deal with it. Exactly. And that's, that's, an, that's, an, unacceptable, that's an unacceptable answer to most of the electorate. And once we're in that position... We're kind of done. And, I, I, you know, I don't know how we're going to get out of that position. And, um, you know, and it, and it suddenly becomes a politically charged question that nobody wants to go near. Well, it, only two ways, Richard. One is a crisis where we see lots of people lose their homes. Um, or the other is through the kind of sustained advocacy that sort of saw things like the introduction of Medicare, which was a trade-off between wages. You know, wages wages were frozen and went down, um, you know, especially if you were a low-skilled worker. Um, 
for much of the 80s really and and in exchange you got a social sort of safety net and I think what's really interesting is that some of the focus group research around housing shows that people actually do understand that their children are, are losing out um, and so it really sort of depends on how these debates are effectively framed but as we have discussed many times on this podcast it is probably not something that a opposition can mm. kind of take on correct it's and that was really uh, in a sense we'll have to end there but that was really the sense of uh, of the real tragedy of that defeat at the last election wasn't the defeat of uh, labor party or the the collapse of the credibility of opinion polls it was the defeat of bold policy and the demonstration that there are limits to what you can propose from opposition in terms of the uh, breadth and complexity of policy. And some of those policies, things like, not related to housing, but the um, uh, franking credits changes, which was very sound policy, uh, but which taken together with with uh, the, the ones I mentioned, negative gearing, capital gains tax and other things, um, became this big negative. And those policies are largely lost now, to go back to a term you used before, Richard, probably lost for a generation because no politician can... Uh, can propose to do it from opposition and mostly uh, are, in, are forced to forswear it uh, before getting elected, that they won't touch negative gearing, that they won't reintroduce, uh, um, you know, they won't uh, remove franking credits and these sorts of things. So, uh, yeah, big costs associated with that in terms of policy. Um, look, it's uh, we're going to have to wrap up there because we've we just simply run out of time, but there's so much more we could talk about, particularly in terms of budget repair. There's no budget repair going on at the moment. We were told there was going to be once unemployment was, um, you know, safely below 5%. Uh, it's now actually below 4% and we're still not seeing it. There's an election going on, so I guess that explains that. But, you know, what will happen after the election? There's so many other uh, unknowns about the economy we could talk about. We've run, run out of time, uh, unfortunately, but um, thanks very much, uh, Richard Holden, for your time today. Really appreciate having you on the podcast. Look forward to talking to you again. Thanks so much, Mark. And thanks, Maria, as always. Thank you. That's Democracy Sausage for this week. Uh, as I say, we'll have some interesting things coming up, hopefully, in the what remains of the election campaign, which is, you know, the best part of a month. Uh, there's still plenty of time, uh, so keep your eye out for that. We'll uh, use our social media channels to... Um, to let you know about that. And if you're in the Canberra region, uh, that could mean uh, some more live events and we hope to see you then. So until next week, bye for now. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.